Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. On July 6, there was a panel held by the Australian Jewish Democratic Society, From Australia to Israel-Palestine, Transnational Solidarity Against the Intersections of Colonialism and Racism, featuring Oli Noy, Michaela Sahar, Crystal McKinnon and Fatima Mawaz. We hear from Oli Noy, a Mizrahi, that is a Jew from Middle Eastern country, journalist, activist. This year, she was one of 50 prominent Mizrahi Jews in Israel who filed a petition to the Israeli High Court of Justice against the nation-state law, stating it, quote, erases their cultural legacy and perpetuates injustices against both them and Palestinian citizens of Israel, end quote. Thank you all for coming. Um, I know that, um, well, for me at least, the, 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 this title, Settler Colonialism, is such an abstract one that in order to talk about it, I want to take you all to a very concrete moment. Um, the 24th of March, 2006, uh, a Pal- two Palestinian residents of uh, the Palestinian city of Hebron in the occupied West Bank uh, walk up to the uh, Israeli military checkpost uh, that is positioned there, um, uh, stabbing one of the soldiers. They were shot by an Israeli, by the Israeli soldiers that were there. Uh, one of them died immediately. The other, Abdel Fatah Sharif, uh, was he fell on the ground bleeding, by the way, for a a quite period of time without getting any uh, medical treatment, although uh, a military ambulance was just around the corner. And after about four or five minutes that he was uh, uh, dying slowly, uh, bleeding to death, an Israeli soldier by the name of El O Azaria shot him dead, basically executed him. <clears throat> and following that, when that was published, uh, eventually El O Azaria became a sort of a popular hero in Israel, so much so that in the previous elections that we've had a few months ago, he was actually uh, the star of the political campaign of one of the uh, Likud parliament member- members, and the Likud party is 
the, the biggest uh, parties, par party of uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. So this moment, this moment of the lethal encounter between El Orazaria and the Abdel Fattah Sharif at that checkpoint in Hebron. For me, it embodies in a very both symbolic and concrete way the meaning of settler colonial uh, reality in Israel-Palestine. First off, because Hebron, probably more than any place else in the occupied territory, embodies the apartheid that the Israeli occupation turned out to be. It's not just, well, in all the West Bank, of course, you have two uh, 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 sets of law, officially, two sets of law for the two different uh, uh, populations living there, the Palestinian uh, residents and the Israeli settlers who are Israeli the citizens uh, of the state of Israel. So it means that if a Palestinian and an Israeli are smoking pot together anywhere in the West Bank, they will be facing two different law systems and probably will be facing very, very different punishments. I mean, the Israeli one would probably walk free and the Palestinian one will sit in jail. That's the meaning of proper apartheid. It, the apartheid in Hebron also means that uh, there is a physical separation inside the city itself. So that, for example, the Shohada Street, the main street, which used to be the main uh, uh, commercial center, uh, the Palestinian commercial center of Hebron, is locked to any Palestinian movement. It means that they are not allowed to be present in what used to be the main street of the city, and this, by the way, happened, this uh, prohibition, after the massacre uh, of uh, the uh, Palestinian worshippers uh, in Hebron. So they were actually punished for an Israeli settler make, you know, committing uh, this hor horrifying uh, crime. Now, El Olazaria, the soldier who executed the uh, Sharif, is a Mizrahi Jew. The Mizrahis, the Mizrahis in Israel are the Jews that immigrated to Israel from Muslim and Arab countries. And I'm mentioning his ethnicity because I think that this adds a whole new layer of complexity to this moment of encounter between him and the Palestinian that was shot dead uh, uh, for trying to resist the occupation of his land. It's, it, and, and, and in that sense, ethnicity matters because El Olazaria, being the descendant of a, of a Mizrahi family, coming from a Mizrahi family, presents both the tragedy of Mizrahim, of Jews from Arab and Muslim countries in Israel, but also a potential for a different, a possibility at least, for a different encounter and different reality that, the, that does not, in the outside 
the the colonial frame. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we hear from Michaela Sahar, an Australian-Palestinian researcher and writer. She holds a doctorate from the University of Melbourne. Her research interests include narrative appropriation, comparative settler colonialism, and questions of identity in settler societies. Thanks, Ollie. Um, I really appreciated the concreteness of, of how you were talking, and also, I guess, talking about the Mizrahi and extracting... Um, both a kind of class dimension and a race dimension in how they function at the moment, but I guess how they could work in a different way in the future. And it reminds me of um, a kind of a footnote in a book about uh, the Palestinians and the Mizrahi looked briefly like they might align over um, the day of the land. And the state intervened in this um, to convince it uh, the Mizrahi community that it was not in their best interest to kind of throw in their lot uh, with Palestinians um, and yeah I think maybe activating that conversation again is really valuable um, what I want to offer today and I've written it down because I'm a very anxious public speaker um, is kind of to invite you into my positionality a little bit which is as a Palestinian and also as an Australian settler and to try and think structurally about how to inhabit both of those places and I guess to try and learn something from my Palestinian self um, in how I can approach my life as a, as a settler in, in, in some ways. And I want to begin actually by talking about Christchurch, um, the recent massacre in Christchurch, because I think it highlights um, some of the prevalent and alarming trends in Australian society at the moment. And I think it's something that we need to look at structurally um, and ask ourselves what we can learn from the event. Uh, all, all of us who are not Indigenous, what we can learn from the event. So Christchurch, for me, when I think about it, highlighted something that I have to remain vigilant about in the Australian context. When I think about Israel-Palestine, I'm always conscious of the Palestinian subjectivity of inequality, of racialization and discrimination, meted out through injustice, arrogance, and violence by the state. But in Australia, for me, it's sometimes possible to feel distance from trends that I can't relate to, like the rise of white supremacy, um, the so-called alt-right, or the idea that being an anti-fast is a bad thing to be. I imagine this must be how some Israelis feel, and I'm clear on how I feel about that position, and that is that it's a response of privilege, or maybe a response of apathy, and that it's utterly inadequate. So I think structural thinking is essential because it's often shirked, because it's much easier to hold individuals accountable rather than the societies that have produced those individuals and enabled them to tend and foster a set of violent fantasies. There's a strong preference in rotten societies to attribute a litany of evils onto a single criminal. We know this pattern, that when people from the dominant social group commit a crime, it's mitigated in politics and media and popular and public opinion 
not because they're viewed as acts of the mentally ill, but because society insists in these cases on the responsabilization of the individual. I think this was clear in the management of Itzhak Rabin's assassin, um, whose insistent political narrative in court was strenuously ignored in the 1990s. Um, and this is also clear in the aftermath of Christchurch, because the Australian perpetrator is not sufficiently recognised as holding a program of ideas which are shared by many, even if few would act as he did. And so I feel like the crisis that we're grappling with at the moment is a refusal to acknowledge that the rationale of these killers is actually commonplace because it's easier to focus on the exceptional actions or course of actions that they've taken. So one of my central uh, research questions as a, as a um, scholar has been, how does a society collectively formulate um, a position in which it's unable to acknowledge the basic rights of others? of a very simple question. And in my work on Israel-Palestine, um, I keep coming up against the idea that Jewish Israelis have a range of unfounded but nevertheless legitimate fears. And I mention this because I think it's the same question that we now confront in Australia um, in an era of rising white supremacist groups and white entitlement. So when we see the return of Pauline Hanson or the um, senatorship of Fraser Anning um, and now in the wake of Christchurch, we are asking in the media and, and I think somewhat collectively, um, what are the legitimate grievances and concerns of people who articulate their problems in terms of African games or Muslim immigration um, or ex excluding refugees? And what's so frustrating about framing a culture of political violence through ideas of um, legitimate grievance or fear is that we use the idea to consider why a dominant group is using its power badly. And I think this is a question for privileged people to ask who aren't directly at risk. But in asking this question, we also ignore the actual rights of Palestinians or of Aboriginal Australians or immigrants or refugees and we pit those rights against a set of feelings, as if they have an equal weight. But in fact, not only that, we know they don't have an equal weight because so often these feelings are weighted over and above actual tangible rights. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're listening to a panel, Transnational Solidarity Against the Intersections of Colonialism and Racism, featuring Oli Noy, Michaela Saha, Crystal McKinnon and Fatima Mawaz. We now hear from Crystal McKinnon, a Yamaji woman who lives and works on Kulin country. And she is also a Vice Chancellor's Indigenous Research Fellow at RMIT. Thanks for having me. Um, I haven't, I've just got some points that I guess I wanted to respond to with um, both Michaela and Wooly's talk today, so thank you very much for having me. Um, so I, like Michaela and Wooly too, want to um, highlight, I guess, that how settler colonialism is a structure um, that, and that's why it's so hard to dismantle, because it's not only, it's horizontal and vertical, and it operates and produces racism and structural inequalities in those ways that are premised upon here 
indigenous dispossession um, and yeah, it structures our world and all of our institutions um, um, like the legal system again as well. I'm going to highlight that like Michaela as well because um, all they spoke about two sets of laws in terms of um, the Israeli and Palestine, Palestinian persons smoking marijuana. Um, you know, and here that operates too, right? We have one set of laws, but it's policed differently, you know. And so, you know, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991, one of the findings in that was that more people, more Aboriginal people die in jail because of policing, because there's more Aboriginal people who are being sent into the courts and then sent to prison, right? Um, and that at the moment is most being um, played out and advocated so strongly by Tanya Day's family in terms of public drunkenness. Um, where her, you probably all, I assume you're all aware that, but I'll just briefly, um, she, Tanya Day is a 55-year-old woman who died in custody in Castlemaine after being removed from a train placed in a police cell. Various failures of the system, or actual successes, but I'll get to that in a minute, where police didn't check on her, didn't call an ambulance, various health um, professionals didn't do their jobs properly, and as a result, um, as a result, she passed away. Um, was murdered by the state, I guess, and that's the way And, um, you know, through the ad ad advocacy of her family and other community behind um, the family at the moment, the coronial courts are considering the role of systemic racism and what it, what role that played in the actions of the people and the um, the people in in the Tanya Day case, which is which is huge, I think, because it hasn't been considered before, um, and. Yeah, and as Michaela said too, the you know the legal system I guess is doing its job. You know, as a part when we talk about settler colonialism being a structure, part of its structure is its policing and prisons, and when it's premised upon the dispossession and the uh, removal of Indigenous bodies or Palestinian bodies, what that means is that these institutions kill and get rid of the people that are dispossessing, and that's. Yeah, and so, yeah, it is doing its job. So that's why reformism doesn't work. We can't make these places better. We can't, we can't fix them because they're broken to begin with or they're, you know. Um, so we need to fight against them, I guess. And um, what else was I going to say? The other thing I wanted to say is that the way settler colonialism, I believe, works as well is that it sets different groups up against each other um, and makes us hate each other and hate ourselves. And a part of the strength, I think, of settler colonialism is that it it shifts and changes, you know, um, and its manoeuvrability and its adaptability is a part of its strength, you know, and that's why we see different changes in who we're supposed to have it or that sort of thing. So one of the most powerful things I think that we can do is to continually be conscious of that and then also turn up and show up um, 
and build alliances with each other to work to dismantle these structures, both internationally and locally. And, you know, if we're working on, in cooling country, then we need to centre Indigenous sovereignties. And in that way, um, we also unmask, I think, settler colonialism by continually centering and um, centering Indigenous uh, sovereignties and, and cultures of the places that we're at. We are kind of circum, you know, we're trying to circumvent, I think, settler colonialism by continuing to, continuing to name and not forget what we're here for and whose bodies and lives are sacrificed for us to be in this place and then to make sure that we're fighting in order for Indigenous futures, I guess. So, so thank you. <laughs> Women on the line. Crystal McKinnon spoke to the Justice for Tanya Day campaign, which you can find more about on a previous program of Women on the Line at 3cr.org.au. Finally, we hear from Fatima Mawaz, who is a filmmaker and writer who has been active in Indigenous solidarity and decolonization work in Muslim and Arab communities. She is involved in Muslims Say No to Invasion Day and produced a short video about Invasion Day in Arabic. I'm going to do a bit of the same, just read out a couple of things that came to mind from everyone having spoken. Um, But before I do, I'm going to say that I'm neither Palestinian nor Indigenous. Um, I am Lebanese and initially from Sydney. Um, And my parents come from an area in Lebanon called Tripoli. Um, Yeah. Um, so there was like heaps of stuff that came to mind. I dropped them down, they might not be in order. And I kind of like, um, so I'm a filmmaker and a lot of the time, mainly I've been, we used to make things up. Initially I started making films to entertain me and my cousins. And then, you know, the whole idea of, I'm also a Muslim, so the idea of da'wah or like, you know, preaching. Um, to Islam, to the non-Muslims, because it's, you know, your responsibility to make sure they know we're not terrorists, you know, like, um, that came into play in a lot of the stories that I started to tell, and then I pivoted back and I was like, actually, no, I do not want to actually be talking to white people, I want to be talking to my community about what we need to do to make ourselves stronger, so that we can, I don't know, hold each other and, like, make sure that we center justice and um yeah support first nations people so the idea of um model minority is a is a is something that i grew up in right so like you grow up as a muslim especially in western sydney you you know the, the government is always looking for you know someone to be their tokens and you you need to be very careful because you know that's your career path right we've se- i've seen it happen to person after person after person like at least five six people who slowly you know are always at the front of the paper who get thrown out everywhere and then the minute that they actually say what they think or stuff up or whatever it is then there goes their careers there goes their lives there goes their families they're like you know they have to go see they have to and this notion of you know model minority um 
yeah, it comes from the idea, like you know, it's in, it's rooted in this idea of Dawa as well, right? Of this, like, it's our responsibility to also, you know, um, explain what Islam is about and you know, make sure everyone becomes Muslim so that you get saved in a way. No joking, like. Um, but yeah, then I came across, or well, I didn't come across, I have a really good friend whose name is Eugenia Flynn, and she, and I, I generally follow her everywhere I go, I write down everything she says, and, and she, at one of her talks, um, mentioned the notion of foundational racism, and the idea that this entire country was established through the exclusion of the people who own the lands. And so that means that, you know, they came here and they said, no, you don't get this, and you don't, to First Nations folks, you can't do this, and you can't. And they did that through actual institutions, yeah? So, and again, like, this is probably really basic for a lot of you guys, but this is all I've got to give you, so. Um, and so then these exact same systems, these health systems, these education systems, were then, you know, made into institutions, Department of Education, Department of Health, blah, 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 and those same systems are now used to oppress us. But we are both the oppressor and the oppressed. And so we need to really start to think about, right, so what do we do when you're two sides of that coin? And so that comes down to centering First Nations resistance, right? It comes down to being like, okay, first shut up and listen, right? Like, learn, educate yourself, read, show up, all of that type of thing. Um, yeah, and I guess that's, that, that, that for me connected with what you were saying around the walls. Um, yeah, and that um, Muslims need to be, and Arabs in general in this country need to be conscious of sovereignty and resistance. And, and how we put our bodies and our money and our voices in spaces or we don't so that this system that is oppressing us because it was actually made to oppress First Nations folks. We've heard excerpts from a panel, Transnational Solidarity Against the Intersections of Colonialism and Racism, featuring Oli Noy, Michaela Sahar, Crystal McKinnon, and Fatima Mawaz. You can find the rest of the discussion via a link to the full audio on the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au and following the links to Women on the Line. Thanks to Geordie Silverstein for moderating the panel and all of the team at the Australian Jewish Democratic Society for putting on the event. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne on Kulin Nation's land, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Litigra. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 
8377. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.